So the passage you're going to look at this weekend, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's probably one of the most well-known passages in the book of Corinthians and possibly in all the Bible. Even people who don't know the Bible know this passage because it's used very often at weddings. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's on page 878 if you're using the chair Bible. You can just pull that out and turn to 878 because some of you may not know where 1 Corinthians is. It's in the New Testament, and that's okay. Uh, we give you the page numbers. The most important thing is you interact with the Bible, not that you know where necessarily things are. That would help in the future, but ultimately it's more important that you're seeing that what uh, I'm saying, what I'm reading, is truly found in the Scripture. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to read the first three verses, and like I said, this is a very uh, popular passage of Scripture. Uh, it's not often, I mean, it's, it's read in different ways. Sometimes the whole chapter is read, uh, sometimes just a portion. We'll get to that portion, but I want to begin by reading 1 Corinthians 13. Paul places it in a very strategic place in the book of Corinthians. It's between chapters 12 and 14, which talk about the gifts of the Spirit and, and the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Uh, but he says this, this is verse 1 of chapter 13. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would be only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now again, these words are generally used when two people are getting married in a wedding ceremony. And we'll see, as he goes on, he describes love. And we'll look at that passage, in, part of the passage in just a moment. But if you understand where Paul is putting this and why he's putting it there, you'll see this is not uh, just Paul kind of saying, you know, I know I'm in the middle of this discussion, but I think it would be good for me to talk about love. No, he's doing it because this is one of the major problems of the church at Corinth. They didn't love one another, and they weren't showing love to one another. And they were really all about the gifts. They had the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, and, and, and the gift of prophecy, and miracles, and all these different things. And they were really, you know, they were all about that. And Paul basically says, you know, if you, you, could, you could speak in whatever tongue, if you could perform whatever miracle, if you could raise the dead, if you could move a mountain, it really doesn't matter because if you don't have love, you're missing an incredibly important component. So that's where he's at. It's really a rebuke. 1 Corinthians 13 is really a rebuke to the church of Corinth. So let me give you a little background because not only is Paul rebuking the church, but there's something there in that text, if you look closely at it, that Paul is saying, and it's something that we must hear today. We have to hear it because it's so important for us to hear Notice what Paul says. In, uh, and I never had a chance to do this because I didn't intend that we were going to go through Corinthians verse by verse and do that. It's more looking at it from a, a perspective. What happens when God reboots a, a heart? When he turns a heart and opens his eyes? What happens when God does that? What happens to the person? What happens when a church comes together of very different people? Some are rich, some are poor, some are slaves, some are free, some are educated, some aren't. And, and when he brings them together as his church, 
What happens in that church and what happens into that community when that church is in that community? What, what takes place within that community? How does that church impact that community? That's kind of what we're looking at. That's the lens we're using. Well, what do we know about the Church of Corinth? For 44 B.C., Julius Caesar reestablished Corinth as a Roman colony. And it became a real major trading uh, block, route. Uh, Corinth became a multi-ethnic, densely populated, very wealthy, and very morally challenged uh, city. The city of Co- uh, Corinth itself was located on a really small, four-mile square piece of, of land, on an isthmus, really, and um, it divided the north and the south. It was a key passageway for travelers and, and people who were selling their wares and, and transporting goods. Uh, it, you know, it was similar to, say, the P- Panama Canal. It was like everything had to go through there in that part of the world. So with so many travelers from various lands, Corinth was multi-ethnic, it was wealthy, it was morally challenged. But it was, it was so immoral that they came up with a term. They said if you lived in Corinth too long, you would become Corinthianized, which meant you were like morally bankrupt. You could become morally bankrupt if you weren't careful. There was an utter moral depravity. Now, overlooking the city of Corinth, there was the temple of Aphrodite. And every night, a thousand prostitutes from the temple would come down from the city and apply their wares. So this was, there was a whole lot of stuff going on there. So Paul writes to this church, which was birthed in this ancient city. Now, if you, were, if you were a church planter, and you said, where should we plant a church in the New Testament world? In the ancient New Testament world, where should we plant a church? How about Ephesus? How about Rome? How about uh, Philippi? You come to Corinth and you go... Yeah, I don't think so. That looks like a pretty rough city. That city is morally bankrupt. You've got the the Temple of Aphrodite. You've got all this other stuff going on. You've got people who are coming and going. And this would be an immense, immense challenge. That's exactly what God does. He takes people from this city that has just thrown together, these lives have been thrown together, and all of a sudden he begins to reboot hearts, and he opens eyes, and he brings them together as a church. And here they are, and you know, as you read the New Testament, the Corinthian church is one of the most, call it lively, call it challenged churches. I mean, when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you're going, whoa, you know, that's kind of a, there's some nasty stuff going on in this church. Well, they came out of a very nasty environment, but you wouldn't be one of those, well, they're so, the people are so nice there. They're so receptive. Let's go there. No, this was a place where God reboots hearts. He opens eyes and, uh, We have the privilege of seeing what he did. In fact, Paul describes their lives. And many of you could say, my life used to be like this, but now, because of Jesus, it's like this. And he says this. This is a, if you jump back a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and page 873, Paul does that. He, He basically says, you used to be this way. He says, those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or are greedy people, or are drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God, describes Corinth. And then he says, such a key phrase, 
I love what uh, he says, some of you were once like that. I like another translation says, such were some of you. Such were some of you used to be that way, but not anymore. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. See what he's saying? He's saying you are transformed. You're being transformed. The church is changing. God has turned your heart. He's opened your eyes. And now you're different people. You're a different person. And now you have to say, how am I going to impact the city around me? Now, the reboot didn't come without growing pains. Corinth was one of the most troubled churches that Paul ever addressed. But God was doing a work in them. And the people of Corinth, they were incredibly gifted people. But they were incredibly challenged. So he comes to this place. This is the part that generally every wedding that uses 1 Corinthians 13, they will use these verses. Page 878, this is 13, chapter 13, verse 4. And Paul says this. Some of you may have an underline in your Bible or on your, your phone or whatever, or your, your pad. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Or it's not proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Have you ever wondered where Paul got this statement? You know, where did Paul get this? I mean, he's going along and he's describing... You know, you could give your body to be burned. You could do this. You could do this. Oh, by the way, let me tell you what love is. And it gets this beautiful, you know, I think my, my mom crocheted this on something. You know, it's one of those things that you, somebody told me, okay, you got it wrong. You don't crochet your needlepoint or you do something else. I don't really care because I'm never going to do it. So it doesn't matter to me. By the way, if you give me something like that, my wife will appreciate it probably. So I don't really care. My whole point is this would be the verses out of the chapter that you would crochet or knit or weave or whatever, right with a magic marker. I don't know. That's kind of what, what you would use. Do you ever wonder where Paul got that? If you read the first 12 cha- chapters of this book, he basically is summarizing... What they weren't doing. Like, for instance, if you go to chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he says, what does he say? Love is not puffed up. Love is not puffed up. Love is not proud. That's what he said. So he's just taking the opposite of what they are doing. They say, we have a lot of knowledge. And he says, you're puffed up, you're proud. Love is not proud. Or uh, in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are, uh, are lawful, but not all things build up. Let, one seek, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, he says, in the, he says love is not self-seeking. And that's what he just said, right? Love is not self-seeking doesn't look out for itself, looks out for others. So all he's doing is he's taking what he's been saying, and he's turned it into a positive statement of love. That's what he's doing here. 
He's rebuking them. He's saying, you know, you have all these incredible gifts, and you're going crazy about all these gifts and stuff, but you treat each other like garbage. But he's saying something else, and this is what I want to spend the rest of my time. And this is where it gets a little bit troubling, and maybe hopefully we can examine our own hearts this morning and look at our own hearts. Because Paul is making a point. He is saying, and and we read this in the first few verses, you can have all the spiritual and miraculous gifts and demonstrate speaking in tongues and and giving your body uh, and moving mountains with faith and having all knowledge. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. You're nothing. And what I think he's saying there is you could have all these spiritual gifts and not be a Christian. I think that's what he's saying. Let let me make my point. Paul, I think, is saying that some who had spiritual gifts were not even Christians. Now, he's not just saying, you're immature and you need to turn your life. No, he's saying, saying, some of you are all about the gifts, but you're not even in the kingdom. You say, well, how is that possible? Uh, How is it possible that you can display the gifts of the Spirit and not be saved? Because I think that's essentially what Paul's saying. Paul is saying this. He's saying there will be people who think they're in and they're not. They might even seem more spiritual than you. You say, well, I don't speak in tongues. I don't, uh, I can't, I don't have faith to move mountains. I've never raised the dead. We'll get into that. Uh, I've never performed any of these miracles. Uh, and you say, well, they must be in because look at all they're doing. And, and the Corinthians said, were on that train. They said, look at all that we do. We must be in. We must be great. Look at how God is using me. Paul basically says you can have all those gifts and not be part of the kingdom of God. How is that possible? Turn to Matthew chapter 7. This is on page 738. Because this is exactly what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, page 738. Jesus said this, and I think I've said this before, and if I've said it and you're tired of me saying it, just pardon me because there are people here that probably have never heard me say it. This is by far one of the most troubling passages in all the scripture for me. This, 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 I'm, not a, I'm not saying I don't agree with it. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm just saying it, when I read it, it troubles me. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, notice many, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed. What, what, what did Paul say? He says, if I cast out demons, if I, if I speak in tongues, if I perform miracles in your name, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply... I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Are you kidding me? Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying you have the gifts, but you're not in. You don't have that inner love. That's a problem. That inner love, the lack of the inner love that you have, is not just a cause for concern that you're not mature, it's a cause for concern that you're not even in the kingdom. Notice, uh, let me give you another example. Uh, Turn a couple more chapters to Matthew 10, verse 5. This is on page 740. So Jesus sends out the 12 uh, apostles. 
And he gives them these instructions. This is verse 5. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only the people of Israel, the Jews, God's lost sheep. Go, Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Notice what he says. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, give as freely as you have received. You say, well, that's great. The disciples, 12 12 apostles have gone out, and they're uh, performing all these miracles. So he sends the 12 out. They heal the sick. They raise the dead. They cure those with leprosy. They cast out demons. They're performing miracles. And those are performing miracles. Where do they get their power to do that? Jesus, right? Who's one of the 12 apostles who will betray Jesus? Judas. Judas is here doing this. But he comes to a place where he says, I'm not going to follow you. I'm out. Judas probably performed miracles. I mean... None of, the other, none of the other apostles even thought he was the traitor. He didn't just fit in. He was one of them, in a sense. He was indecipherable until it came to the point where he said, that's it, I'm done. Even at the, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you, one of you will betray me. He was never a believer in Jesus. Yet he was able to perform miracles. Now, he didn't get his power from Satan. He got his power from Jesus. You say, how is it possible that somebody who doesn't doesn't have the Spirit of God with him can still do spiritual gifts? And my, my answer to that is, I think it's common grace. I think sometimes God gives people common grace to do good. And there are good people in our world today who are doing good things, and God is giving them exceptional power and abilities to do those things. But in the end, some of them will come to Jesus. It says, not just some. I'm, I'm, I'm making the word of God easier to comprehend and ma- easier to swallow. He doesn't say some. He says, many will come to me on that day and say, we perform these miracles in your name. And he will say, you, you, we don't know. you don't know me and I don't know you. I believe uh, that uh, miracles... Uh, that are being done today, good things that are being done today, people will stand before God one day and say, look what I did for you. And Jesus will say, I'm sorry, who are you? Because I don't know you. God empowers and uses people to do good, but in the end, they will never put their trust in him. Paul was saying, you can manifest spiritual gifts, you can speak in tongues, you can perform miracles, you can give your body to be burned, and still be completely lost. The manifestation of gifts or miracles are not a yardstick of grace. Just because you have these supernatural gifts doesn't mean that you've received the grace that God has given you. Notice what Paul says going back to chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Prophecy and speaking in an unknown language and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Here's Paul's point. Paul's saying love is miraculous than miracles. Love is more more miraculous than miracles. 
the love that he's speaking of comes only from God. Only this Holy Spirit within you can empower and compel you to love, serve, and forgive others. And so that was, that's what was missing with many of the people of Corinth. They weren't loving. They weren't forgiving. They weren't bringing, you know, looking out for one another. They're looking out for number one. They had the miracles. They had the spiritual gifts. Uh, but they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. They didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. They were imposters. And the point is this, unless you are born again and you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit compelling and empowering you, you will become a great imposter. It's better to figure that out than to stand before Jesus one day and realize it. Your service, your sacrifice, your use of spiritual gifts will become a means of getting over on God. You, you're, you basically will say, God, I did this. I, I healed the sick. I cast out demons. I spoke in tongues. I performed miracles. I had the gift of prophecy. I did all of this for you. You owe me. You owe me. Look at what I've done for you. Maybe you're, you're here and you need to ask these questions about your life. Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do you do anything for God? What compels you? The scripture says the love of God within us compels us. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes you're compelled because you're saying, I'm going to do these good things. Or you may even say, you know, when I teach a Sunday school lesson or I lead a kids club or when I do this, I feel God is using me. That's great. That's, that's, that's wonderful. When I give my money, I feel God using me. Well, that's great. God's using you. But have you given your life and your heart to Him? Why are you doing that? Do you serve? Do you possess gifts? Do you perform miracles? Do you teach the kids? Do you preach sermons? Do you give your money so that God will let you in that He owes you? That's, that's not the gospel. That's not grace. You see, and so many people have that wrong, especially in this community. They have it wrong. Uh, Is your love, uh, he says this in the beginning, he says, in, in the beginning of the chapter, he says, you can become like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, right? If you're not in tune with the Holy Spirit, you can do all those. You can play those notes. You can play the gong. You can play the cymbal. But it's out of tune. You know, when somebody uh, plays an instrument and it's out of tune, you go. If, you, if you're anywhere near musical, like my mom, she wouldn't know it if, if she heard something off tune. Especially around Christmas time when she used to sing Christmas carols. Sorry, Mom. Um, she was so off key. It was just awful. But... If you have an ear for music, you can hear whether somebody is off or on. And what Paul is saying is if you do not have the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit within you, you can do all these things, but you're out of tune. You're a noisy gong and you're a clanging cymbal. Judas was out of tune with Jesus, so he determined to cut his losses and to make some money. Now, in Corinth, the gong and the cymbals were a call to worship to the temple. It meant come and worship. I won't go into what they did when they worshiped, but that's what it meant. 
So the point that Paul, I think, is making that we need to hear is, if you're not born again, no matter what good things you do, no matter what spiritual gifts you possess, no matter what miracles you perform, you're out of tune with Jesus, and he will say to you one day, I don't know you. You've been playing music, but you've been playing to another director, because it's not me. And you've been playing for some reason, and, and it might have been a reason I feel good when I play this kind of music, even though it's out of step with Christ. Or you say, I'm playing this music because one day as I play enough music, play the right music, play long enough that, that, that I'll have a, a repertoire that I can present to God, and he'll say, come on in, based upon my record. You could do incredible miracles in ministry and be lost, unconverted. People may tell you what a good job you're doing. You feel empowered when you serve others, but one day you will stand before Jesus as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and he will say, I don't know you. Now, what we tend to do is it's so easy. We can, we can use service as a way of uh, serving or giving as a means of identity. We say, well, I, this is my identity. I, I, I preach or I teach or I, I serve or I give or I do this. This is where I feel good about who I am. I get my identity from that, from that rather than from him. So we've taken serving or giving or anything else. We made it an idol and we said, this is my identity. This is what makes me feel good. And, you, you know, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered about people who have been long, you know, for a long time they have been Christians and they have faithfully served and then they just go by the wayside and they don't want anything to do with God. And you say, how is that possible? He's exactly, this is how it's possible. Because the Spirit of God has never ignited their heart. Paul said to the people of Corinth, some of you used to be this, some of you used to be this, some of you used to be not anymore because God came into your life. He changed your heart. He rebooted your heart. He opened your eyes. You're a different person. You're not perfect. You haven't arrived yet. But you are fueled and fired by the Spirit of God within you. And you love others. You forgive others. You sacrifice, not for them or what you feel, but for him and what he's done. Because he's given you a new capacity, a new ability, a new desire that you, know, you, can't, even, you can't even take credit for it. Because sometimes you do it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever loved somebody or forgiven somebody or sacrificed for somebody who didn't deserve it? And you wonder, or maybe somebody asks you, why would you ever do that? How could you ever forgive that person? Why would you love that person? Why would you sacrifice for that person? And you say, I, I don't know. It's just, I know, I, I know that's what God wants me to do. It's the Spirit of God within me. What I'm saying is you're not a Christian because of your activities, but because of His grace. See, what God says to us is this. I love you. What we generally say to other people is this, our spouses and our kids or whatever. Uh, our kids say it to us. Sometimes we say it to them. Sometimes parents, we say, I love you when you go to bed and you, 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 be, you, you obey me. I love you when you do that, right? And what are we, now, hopefully we're not really just saying that. Well, some parents maybe are. But, um, but hopefully we're saying, you know, I love you, period, right? Not, I love you if, I love you when, I love you because. We don't put those, these uh, exceptions on it. We just say, I love you, period. There'll never be a day, there'll never be a time where I won't love you. I hope your kids know that. But sometimes we put those clauses in. We say, I love you because you make me this, or you look beautiful. 
And if you're saying that to your wife or your husband, you're handsome, I love you, you're just setting yourself up for a problem down the road here, right? Because things aren't going north, they're going south in many ways. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you do plastic surgery and all that. I mean, maybe you're doing that to keep things tight and all that. But my point is, if you say, I love you because, or I love you if, or I love you when, what you're doing is you're putting a clause on there and you're saying, this is why I love you. But if you stop doing that, what happens? What does God say to us? I love you, period. And this is how much I love you. I sent my son. And Jesus says, I love you enough that I will give my life for you. And you can't pay me back. And you, you'll, you, what you, you, you'll, you don't deserve it. And, 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 and you didn't, and I didn't, I just did it because I chose to love you. Period. Paul says, that kind of love lasts forever. And it's better than speaking in tongues. It's better than healing people. It's better than casting out demons. It's, it's greater than all of those things. Those are just manifestations of something that's taken place within us. But Paul basically says, if you want to know you're in, do you have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you, do you love? Do you forgive? Do you sacrifice? Are you in communion with the Father in heaven? If that's not true, then you need to do some soul searching. Because Jesus says it's very, very easy, or Paul says it's very, very easy to become a clanging gong, an a, 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 a out of tune gong, and a clanging cymbal. Until you have the Holy Spirit within you, guiding and directing you, where you see the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, you, you need to say, well, what went wrong? What went wrong? So Paul is, in 1 Corinthians 13, he is saying to the church, we need to call time out here because there's something missing here in the life of this faith community that we call the church at Corinth. You're not loving each other. And more importantly, my, my, my concern is, Paul speaking, that I believe some of you have all the gifts, but you don't have, you're not in the kingdom. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, but he's not within you. And that is something we all need to wrestle with. The Bible says we should examine our hearts and make sure that we are in the faith, that we know him. So that when we stand before him one day, we won't have that terrible, terrible moment where he says to us, I don't know you. You were playing to another orchestra leader, not me. You were doing it for whatever reason, but not me. You you think you know me, but I don't know you. And that doesn't mean he doesn't know of you. You just don't have that relationship. You don't have the Spirit of God. You don't have that connection with God. When you have that, you'll know it. You'll see it coming out. You'll see it compelling you. You'll see it changing you. You'll see it making you into a different person. Where Paul would say to you the same thing he said to them, such were some of you, but not anymore. 
not anymore. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. So, Father, this is a pretty uh, sobering word. It's a beautiful chapter, and oftentimes we use it merely on a surface level. Certainly there is a, a point that it speaks on what love really is and the components of it. But we need to go deeper and say, why am I doing this? What compels me? What moves me? What motivates me? What gives me the power? What gives me the the desire? Who does that within me? Do I have the Holy Spirit within me? Do I care about others? Am I serving others? Am I looking to you? Do I have a relationship with you? Father, if there's anyone here today that is not sure, may today be the day that they say, Jesus, I realize you came and gave your life for me. You lived the life I should have lived. You died the death I should have died. I am hopeless and helplessly drowning in sin, and unless you come into my life, I'm dead. And I realize there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation as a gift from you. You love me, period. And I realize that for the first time, and I As you gave your life to me, I give my life to you, and I begin to follow you. I don't know what that means. But I call upon you to be my Savior today. Father, for those of us who are in, maybe we've been Christians for a while, but we've been relying on our works, our gifts, we would say that our private time with you is, if it was there, it's fizzled out and should be a cause for a concern. May we look into our hearts and make sure that we're not the, the uh, noisy gong and the clanging cymbal, but that we are in tune with your spirit and that we are being used by you And that we are growing to be the people you've called us to be. Transforming us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. So that we can say, that used to be me, but not anymore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.